This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, I have a really special guest. This guy is a giant in the public speaking circuit. He's been everywhere. I don't even know how many corporations and events he's appeared at, um, probably 100 plus a year. He also essentially mentored under some really great people, and I'm sure they'll come up in the conversation, but I want to focus on he himself because he's out there. He's got a great message on influence. He also has a podcast that is going on right now, How to Be a Real Man. I think he wants to probably talk about that too. Today's guest is Chris Widener, and he is the co-author of 12 Pillars with Jim Rohn. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate you coming on. It's really an honor to have you come on. Now, I, I've been doing some research because I do that with guests, and apparently you weren't always um, the best example for motivation in your life. <laughs> no, I um, I had a crazy upbringing, um, you know, by no means uh, my fault per se. My dad died when I was four and he was severely underinsured. He was making $90,000 a year in 1969, which wow. is equivalent of about a million dollars a year now. And But he only had $30,000 worth of life insurance. And so long story short, my mom had to sell the house that we were living in, big, beautiful mansion in the Sandpoint Country Club in Seattle. Uh, and because she couldn't afford the $400 a month mortgage payment. And, uh, so that began a downward spiral. My mom became, uh, got into real estate. She became a house flipper. So I ended up living in 28 homes, went to 11 different schools and was shipped off to live with relatives twice, once in the fourth grade, once in the ninth grade and uh, began to do drugs and drink alcohol in late fifth grade, sixth grade, uh, made most of my money growing up scalping tickets and at, at like Mariners games and, uh, you know, Seahawk games and those kinds of things. And then uh, betting the ponies at Long Acres Horse Track. So you can kind of get a view that I was not really uh, headed in the right direction. Uh, but I ended up getting my life turned around because I realized that I was going nowhere fast and I knew that I wanted to be successful. And and uh, because I had such a crazy upbringing, I, I was doing lots of speaking engagements once I got out of college because people wanted me to come and tell my story. So high school, summer camps, oh. junior highs, colleges, that kind of stuff. And eventually over the years, it gravitated more towards uh, speaking to adults and seminars and conferences and things like that. Okay, so you're a redemption story. That's what got your start. Basically, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the way to. That's the way to put it. And I believe you uh, were a minister at some point. I was for 14 years, uh, from 1988 until 2002. Uh, I got my degree in youth and family ministry because I was going to work with uh, at-risk kids. And it ends up, I never ended up working with at-risk kids. I had a job in a very, very wealthy community just outside New York City called Mendham, New Jersey. And I ended up being mentored by some of the greatest businessmen in in in, uh, in America, including one guy, one of my first business mentors, uh, was the CEO of Mars Candies. Uh, but the number two guy at Prudential Insurance, the number six guy at Exxon, a former quarterback in the NFL, uh, all their kids were in my youth group. And, and so I ended up spending a lot of time with these guys. They sort of took me under the wing. I was a young kid, 22 to 25 when I lived out there. And, and, uh, it was, it was a great opportunity for me. And then of course I was a senior pastor of a church. I don't know how senior you can be when you're 25, but, uh, <laughs> but I was, and, uh, did that until, uh, 2002 when I began to write and speak full time. You know, it's really interesting. I, I'm going to be counterintuitive. I almost think your troublesome childhood might have lined you up to be a leader because a lot of troublemakers 
tend to become leaders. Oh, absolutely. Um, because you have to be willing to, to stir the pot in order to be a real leader. You have to initiate, you have to challenge assumptions and challenge opinions and challenge the status quo. And, um, in fact, I'll tell you a funny story. I was at a, a seminar once I was speaking there and it was a huge seminar, maybe a thousand people. And this very successful woman who I knew was also at the seminar speaking, uh, but neither one of us was speaking at the time. And I walked into the big room and she was sitting in the very last row. And I walked up to her and I said, you know, all the A students sit in the front row. <laughs> and she and she said something profound. She said, yeah, but all the A students end up working for us C students. <laughs> and and it's true. You know, if you're an A student, what does that mean? It means you follow orders, you do what you're told, you cross all your T's and dot all your I's. If you're a C student, you're probably, you know, doing just enough to make sure you get the grade, but you're probably off, you know, fiddling around and, and stirring the pot and making trouble. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't try and get A's, but I think sure. there's a point to be made there. Did you um, ever see the uh, W. Bush commencement address? No, uh-uh. He uh, essentially said to all of you A students and B students, congratulations, you guys are going to go far. And to all you C students, you too can be president of the United States. <laughs> That's about it. I thought that one lined up just perfectly. Yeah, yeah. What I find interesting, though, is it sounds like while you were in trouble, you had a survival instinct because you were still able to keep it together enough to be a ball boy for the supersonics, right? Yep. Well. And you still were together enough to scalp tickets. It, it sounds like you never completely went over the deep end. So what was what was holding you back? I mean, what was your what were you anchoring on? I, I think sports probably. Um, I played football in the fall, basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring. I was quarterback in the football team. I was point guard on the basketball team and second base. Well, I started out as a catcher till I went to the big uh, field and I couldn't throw down to second base, so I, they moved me to second base. Um, and so sports is probably what kept me from going over the edge because I wanted to, to be on the team. And if you go over the edge, you get kicked off the team. So that probably is what kept me from going over the edge. Okay. Interesting. I think you had mentioned before that you had a, a youth minister or something. Was that a factor as well? Yeah. It, it's kind of funny. You know, I had no male role models growing up. My one grandpa ran off with somebody. Uh, so I didn't even know him. I met him one time my entire life. Uh, the other grandpa died when I was a young guy and even when uh, you know, a young kid, and even when I was a young kid, all I remember him is laying on the couch with uh, an oxygen tank in, in his nose because he had emphysema. I don't remember any interactions with the man at all. My dad died when I was four. My brother's 13 years older than me and he married a girl who hated my mom. So <laughs> they so they never came around. Um, so I, you know, I literally had no male role models growing up. The only, only male I was, you know, interacted with a lot was my uncle Paul. And, uh, he's the guy my mom shipped me off to live, uh, to live with in the fourth grade. And he beat me so badly that literally on his deathbed, 30 years later, he called me to his deathbed to apologize and ask for forgiveness uh, oh, wow. for, for how badly he had, had treated me and beaten me. So I had no male role models. So I ended up one night, I'm spending the night at one of my best friend's house and, and um, we wake up Sunday morning and I had never gone to church ever. I didn't know anything about it. I, I, I literally had no concept whatsoever. And um, 
we wake up and my friend's mom comes into the, the bedroom and she says, get up. We're going to Sunday school. Well, I literally had no clue what Sunday school was, but I was like, well, I've tried everything else. I'll try Sunday school. Well, there was a youth minister there, a good old boy from Montana, from Montana. And he sort of served two roles. He served the role of introducing me to the concept of God and something bigger than myself and a greater purpose. But he also served the role as a male role model uh, who would, you know, put the proverbial boot up my butt. And um, there were many times he just looked at me and said, you have way too much potential um, and you're just blowing it. You're screwing it up. And uh, I still keep in contact with the guy. He lives just outside of Helena, Montana. And, and I spoke with him last week. Um, but, uh, that was really good for me to have somebody who could, you know, give me some vision for life, but also, you know, crack down on me a little bit. That's really cool. And definitely helpful if we can find anyone to inspire. Is that what led you to determine, Hey, um, this guy made such an, a difference to me. I want to make a difference to others like the youth and families. Yeah, studies. yeah, absolutely. That, that was the sort of a pivotal point in my life. Yeah. Um, I don't remember where you said it. I've done a lot of research, but you said something really profound that I think relates into this, but wounds from a friend can be trusted. Yeah, that's an old proverb from the Bible. And um, a lot of times we surround ourselves with people who are going to tell us what we want to hear. And then sometimes we hear things from people that, that don't have our best interests in mind. And so they'll wound us by saying horrible things to us or whatever. But when you mix your friends and the quote unquote wounds, um, those are, are things that can be trusted. Um, I have, I probably have four or five guys in my life that, that I know that they care enough about me and they love me and we have a friendship um, that if they were to tell me that I was being a total knucklehead, um, that I would listen, you know, and so it wouldn't, it would be something that I could trust. It would hurt. It doesn't feel great to have somebody call you on your BS, but, uh, if they're friends, then you, you can trust that you can say, you know what, this person isn't, this person isn't saying this to hurt me or to wound me. They're saying this to help me. And so you can trust that. Now, you're being open to this type of thing and seeking out the uh, male role models, et cetera. Do you think that might've influenced you in the sense of you kind of, I don't know if it, you fell into it or you manipulated or worked your way into it, but you worked with some legendary figures, um, Jim Rohn and Zig Ziglar to name two. Do you think um, they served as kind of later role models? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the way I ended up working with them is, is when I resigned from being a pastor in 2002, I had been working as a ghostwriter for a guy named John Maxwell. And I don't know if you're familiar with John or not, but um, sort of a leadership guru, probably 20 million books in print, probably the highest paid leadership speaker in, in the world today. I think he starts at about $100,000 an event to show up and talk for an hour. Um, hmm. but, uh, he, um, sort of opened the door. Jim Rohn asked if I would work with them and do some writing, um, spent some time with him, considerable amount of time with him, did some speaking engagements with him, uh, got to know him a little bit and he served as a role model. And then of course I had my own television show in Dallas and that's how I ended up working with Zig on his television show. Cause he didn't want to carry the whole thing on him on his own. Cause he was getting older. He was in, you know, pushing 80, if not 80 already. Um, you know, and e even now, uh, I just started working with, I got a phone call from, uh, Harvey McKay, uh, who wrote swim with the sharks without being eaten alive. Harvey's 86 now. And 
him, really creating his legacy piece called the Harvey McKay Academy. And uh, so they've called and asked me to work with them because I think what happened is I got a reputation that um, these sort of legendary figures know that I can deliver the goods, create great content, but they can also trust me with their brand because, you know, these guys, they create these big brands that are worth tens of millions of dollars and they can't just partner with anybody. Um, you know, they, they have to find somebody that they can trust. And so I think over the course of my career, I proved that I can, I can do the work that's needed. Um, you know, I'm not a limelight seeker, although being in their presence has created a lot of limelight for me. Um, but I, I, uh, I understand their brand and what it means to serve their brand instead of, you know, hurt or steal their brand. So you're the ultimate team player. I try to be, um, you know, it's kind of funny when I was in, when I was in, uh, I, I told this story to Larry the other day, Larry wing my partner on, uh, on the real man podcast. Um, when I was my second year of little league football, uh, and, and I think this is a, such a profound story as it relates to what I ended up becoming for a living. Um, it was, you know, at the end of, at the end of sports seasons for little kids, they usually throw a pizza party at the pizza parlor and they hand out, uh, they hand out trophies and they'd handed out the trophy to everybody. And then they said, okay, now it's time for the most valuable player. And I, I thought for sure I was the most valuable player. I mean, I was, you know, I scored the most touchdowns. I was had the most tackles, you know, all that. And they did this long speech about most valuable player and how valuable he was. And I just thought for sure that my name was going to get called. And they called out the name Scotty Balcos. I still remember it. I want to connect with Scotty Balcos and tell him this story. Scotty <laughs> Balcos. And I'm like, Scotty, Bal now Scotty was, you know, a great player and, and, probably truly deserved the most valuable player award. I was hacked. I mean, I was mad. I was fuming. And then he said, okay, we've got one more trophy to give out. And I was sort of in a daze. I was still ticked off. I didn't win most valuable player. And he goes into this speech. He says, this is for most inspirational, the most inspirational player. And he gave this speech about how as a coach, you, you can't get on the field and you need somebody on the field who can do what you need them to do whenever you need them to do it. And he said, Anytime I needed a touchdown, anytime I needed somebody to get two more yards, anytime I needed somebody to make a tackle, all I knew that I needed to do was yell out one name and all I needed to yell out was Chris. And it, it, at, at eight or nine years old, it made a fundamental, and I was so proud of that after hearing the speech and the rationalization for being given the most inspirational award instead of the most valuable award. Um, it made a profound impact on what I wanted to be and how I was recognized for being that guy that could be the go-to guy, right? In fact, I've always joked that uh, I want my my uh, tombstone to say, Chris Widener, he got shit done. And, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, I, I take pride in that, that when something needs to be done, I can get it done. And uh, that, that made a profound impact. And so I think now when guys like that say, I need this done, I can get it done. I, I'll, I'll play on the team. I'll be, as you called it, the team player. I think that was your anchor that helped you survive. Sure, probably so. That established an image of you that was projected on you and you could put against yourself. And anytime you weren't matching this image that somebody had put on you, that you were going through a cognitive um, dissonance. And that's probably why as soon as you got in an environment where you could break out, you jumped. 
Yeah, I, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. Now, moving on to that, because I find it really interesting. I've listened to both of your influence pieces and one message that you've spoken about in those pieces and in your speech, which I think is kind of related to your influence um, books, yeah. is the fact that there are skill training classes, but no character training classes. Yeah, or very few for sure. And I'm kind of wondering if in your life, your religion was in fact your character training class. Yeah. In fact, I'll ask that question. I'll say, how many of you have been to a skill training class? And everybody raises their hand. Then I'll say, how many of you have been to a character training class? And very few people raise their hand. And 95% of the time when they do, it's usually through some sort of religious organization. Although a lot of people consider landmark uh, sort of character training as well. Uh, And I'm often asked, have you gone through landmark? Which I haven't. But uh, I do know that a lot of people find what I say to be very congruent with what people learn in Landmark. Yeah, it's interesting. And that was something I thought about, too. And I'm not particularly religious myself. I was raised in an environment, but kind of broke away from it. But I do wonder if, societally speaking, part of the reason messages are resonating is there is a lack of, I guess, traditional upbringing, missing fathers, uh, families that aren't structured very well or they're having big problems and that's causing the rise of popularity of your message here for events. And then, uh, folks like Jordan Peterson, which I'm sure you've heard. Sure. Absolutely. And it's funny because Jordan Peterson brings up the Bible all the time and biblical stories. And the fact is, is if you didn't believe in God at all, if you were an absolute affirmed atheist and you said, I'm going to sit down and read the Bible as a morality tale, um, it's filled with everything. I mean, you you know, look at King David. Um, I, I wrote a book on the David and Michelangelo called The Angel Inside. But mm-hmm. let's just take, even if you didn't believe that it was historically accurate, which we know there was a King David, but let's just say you didn't even believe that. You were literally reading it as a piece of fiction. I mean, what King David went through, I mean, you know, uh, he walks out on his balcony one day and he sees this beautiful naked woman taking a, a bath on top of her uh, her smaller house that he could see from. And he tells his people to go get her. He brings her. He has sex with her. He decides he's going to marry her. So he decides to set up her husband to be sent out to war. And he tells the general to make sure that, that the rest of his team pulls back. So he's stranded and gets murdered. I mean, you know, you got sex and murder and betrayal and love and faith. And you've got everything in the Bible, right? You know, and, and a certainly you have certain parts of the Bible, like the book of Proverbs, which is basically just little success principles put into these pithy little Proverbs. So um, it's interesting that, that you know, I think that the Bible, and you know, you listen to Jim Rohn, he quoted the Bible all the time. His dad was a minister. Um, Zig Ziglar, of course, all the time. John Maxwell, who was a former minister. Um, you know, the, the, the Bible is filled with all sorts of things, even if you decide you don't even believe in God, just, just as a morality tale and what to do and what not to do simply by reading the stories of the people in it. Well, and that's something I've noticed in the self-help world. There is a remarkable, not just self-help, but um, sales and motivational, et cetera. There's a lot of very religious people who are either religious themselves or they come from a religious background. They train to be a pastor. I mean, over and over and over. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it really is true. You find a lot of people with that perspective, but you find a lot of people who aren't. You find a lot of people from various other religions as well, um, you know, um, and, and so I think it, it takes all kinds. When I'm wondering if um, 
like Mormons are particularly good in sales because of door knocking for life. Oh, absolutely. I've often said, I've often said, if you want a, a tenacious salesperson, hire a Mormon. Because I mean, you know, the Mormons, when they knock on your door, and I, I know a lot of Mormons, and I've studied uh, Mormonism, um, they're very, very ineffective in regard to um, winning people to their religion, knocking on doors. But what they build is they build the thickest skin of anybody around, right? Because, I mean, you spend two years at, a, at, a, at the age of 18, 19, literally knocking on doors and being spit on and told to get off your porch and doors slammed in your face. And then you go back and you're sitting in a cubicle selling something. That's easy. Definitely true. Now, you brought up the angel inside and I actually read that oh, yeah. as well in preparation. Um, in that, though, you were promoting the idea of um, follow your passion. Yeah. Now, have you shifted at all from that? Because that's actually kind of a debated topic right now. Um, even you and Larry Winget yeah. had kind of um, gone back and forth on it. Like Mike Rowe, have you heard yeah, of Yeah, the or? dirty jobs guy. Right. He kind of comes at it a different way. He's saying, find your work and then discover passion within it. Well, I think if you're stuck in a job and you can't and you don't have any other choice, sure, you better figure something out. But on the other hand, I haven't worked for somebody for 30 years. I get up every single day. I do exactly what I want. Uh, I'm sitting here right now in some gym shorts and a, and a T-shirt, and I'm not schlepping myself down the road in, in uh, you know, traffic. And, you know, if I want to take the day off, I take the day off and I, you know, I run my own schedule. I like that. And I can't even imagine going off and having somebody else tell me what to do. I'm permanently unemployable, I think. Um, <laughs> and I do what I love. I, I do podcasts. I love doing this. I love talking about ideas and sharing them and knowing that thousands of people, tens of thousands of people will hear it. Um, I love helping people with their life. I love writing books. I love uh, seeing the impact that those have on people. Um, and that's truly my passion. Uh, if I had to go do another job, I suppose if, if that was the only resort, I suppose I'd try and find some way to enjoy it. But, you know, I know Larry's always, you know, Larry's always poo-pooing passion, but life's short, man. Life is short. Why do something that doesn't make you happy? Um, I just could never do it. Right. I'm wondering if the answer might be somewhere in the middle. Um, because to be fair, you may be a case of survivorship or survivor bias. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I haven't. That's a, a case where if I look around and I, all I see are motivational speakers who are going around, then I'll assume that everyone is a successful motivational speaker. But for everyone that's successful, there's a lot, I'm sure, who didn't. Oh, make for it. sure. Yeah, absolutely. But we never hear of those because, well, they didn't make it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know lots of people who struggle as, <laughs> as motivational speakers. They're always coming and asking how to get better. <laughs> well, first you got to be motivated. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there, there's a definite irony. Yeah, there is. Um, and on that note, there's the other side of it. Um, I interviewed a, a gentleman, Daniel Geffen, who wrote a, a really cool book called The Self-Help Addict. And I think you had discussed some of this before about seminar junkies. Seminar junkies, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's people, and here's what I always say, you know, depending upon what number you you uh, look at and depending upon what genre of self-help you, you bring into it, if you bring weight loss into it, the number is certainly much bigger. But, um, you know, it's either 10 to $40 billion a year spent on self-help. Well, you start thinking about that and thinking, gosh, we've been doing self-help for 
30, 40, 50 years, really more than that if you add in. But I mean, it's been a huge part of American culture for 20, 30 years. Um, and yet we're just as screwed up now as we ever have been and maybe more so. And so what you realize is, is there's a lot of people who are just buying stuff and putting it on the shelf. Um, they're not really applying it. And so they, they love to go to the seminar. They love to travel. They love to be there. They love to hear the speech. They love to be inspired, but then they don't go home and actually do it. Right. There's that, um, scenario. I don't know if you've heard of it before. Some people say, if you're going to do something, don't talk about it to anyone. And I know you don't personally encourage that, but the reasoning behind it is you actually get an endorphin rush just by talking about what you're going to do. So some people will utilize that. I'm going to start dieting tomorrow. And then they get a little dopamine hit because they're going to start dieting tomorrow, but they never really do. They kind of live off of st stating that they're going to do something, but never actually moving forward. And I tell people to tell people because then you'll be too embarrassed to show up and not do it the next time. Because if you tell the right people, they're going to ask you, you know, if you tell people I'm going to start eating healthy and then you ask them to go out for for lunch and you order a big fat juicy burger, they're going to look at you and go, I thought you were going to start eating healthy and you go, Oh yeah, you're right. I'll order the salad. You know? So I, that's why I tell people to tell people what your goals are. So you're looking for the accountability. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Which is helpful if they have the right peers, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to tell the right people. Now um, that brings me to another point that believe it or not, I think kind of ties to it. Your book links. I know Larry likes to make fun of them that they're short. He calls them pamphlets. Oh yeah. He calls them pamphlets. <laughs> yeah. I actually want to defend you. Okay. Go ahead. The fact is, I don't know how many self-help books you've read or um, nonfiction books, educational stuff, things like that, but they tend to be excruciating. And usually the point of the book is covered in the first chapter, maybe two. And the rest of the book is repeating the same concept ad nauseum in a more verbose yeah, manner. For sure. Well, so when I was, I had been doing ghostwriting, right? And I'd been writing for all these people. And I, I had a moment when I came up with a really cool idea and I was writing for somebody else. And I thought, to, and nobody would ever know, but I would have known. And I thought I should just pocket this for myself and keep this because this is a really cool concept I just came up with. But I was on the clock for somebody else and they were paying me a thousand dollars an hour to write for them. And oh, wow. uh, it was a very high end uh, ghostwriting work that I did for a couple of years. And, and so I gave it to this guy, I gave him the idea and kind of what burned me was I thought, well, now if I ever say this, people are going to think that it's his and I stole it from him, even though it was my idea. <laughs> so I decided to fire all my ghostwriting clients and I ended up um, deciding that I was going to write a book and it was going to be very creative. And, and so I had two pieces of advice. I, I, decided uh, the Da Vinci Code was really popular and there was a popular self-help book called How to Think Like Leonardo Da Vinci. And there were three very famous people who all lived in Florence, Italy in 1500. One was Da Vinci. Mm -hmm. The other was Machiavelli. I didn't want to write a book on Machiavelli. And the other was Michelangelo. Some people would argue that Raphael was also part of that group, which, okay, fine. There were four people. So <laughs> I decided I wanted to write on Michelangelo and I got two pieces of just random advice one was from Mark Sanborn, the leadership speaker who wrote the book, uh, Fred Factor. And he said, you should write it fiction. And I went, huh? All right. So I did. I wrote a fictional book. And then the other was um, uh, Charlie Tremendous Jones. And Charlie was a contemporary of Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn, not nearly as famous as them, but 
made a career as a, a great motivational speaker. And Charlie says to me, Chris, he was like six foot five, weighed like 300 pounds and had this biggest booming personality you've ever, literally the first time I ever met him. And I'm not a small guy. I'm, you know, I'm 5'10", 220 pounds. And literally the first time I met him, he picked, put his arms underneath my, my armpits, lifted me up and planted a kiss on my face. Um, like literally, <laughs> that is not embellishing one bit. And he says to me, he says, Chris, don't write a thick book. Nobody reads thick books anymore. Make it nice and short. So I, I walked into a Barnes and Noble. I picked up a Ken Blanchard book. I counted how many words were on a page. I multiplied by the number of pages. And that's how long my books were, 20,000 words. And uh, so all of my books are 18,000 to 22,000 words and they're fiction. And it's worked out very well for me. And uh, people don't like to read big, long books. In fact, Jordan Peterson's book is terrible. I took, uh, I have a men's mastermind group and none of my guys could get through it. They're just like, it's this way too long. And which one did uh, you do maps of meaning or the 12, 12 rules? And they got through it, but they like started skimming, you know, they got the gist of every chapter and skimmed through all the chapters, but not a single one of them said, yeah, I read it, you know, beginning to end word for word because it was, that's Jordan. It was, though. Jordan doesn't stay on point. No. And, and actually what's kind of funny is, is, um, I, I feel like I told Larry, I said, uh, I said, Larry, Jordan Peterson is the thinking man's Larry wing it. You know, he, he says the same thing, be responsible, make commitments. Oh yeah, but he just says it like a college professor from Canada. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's actually a a bit of a roughneck. Oh, is he? he grew up um, in the oil field. Oh, okay, yeah, um, in Alberta. So he's a, a very interesting guy. He's huge right now, yeah. and it, it is kind of funny because he's just stating old fashioned lessons. Right. Um, Zig Ziglar would look at me and go, "Yeah, yeah, I've been saying that so? for thirty years, right? <laughs> <laughs> right." Yeah, nobody else is out there saying it, and he's saying it. He's actually controversial, which is scary. What's yeah? What's scary is that just saying it is controversial. Yeah, it's it's shocking to me. Like I watch some of his I watch some of his uh, videos on online, and you know he'll go on some TV shows, Bill Maher or whatever, and he'll just state the patently obvious, and people go apoplectic over it. Yeah. Some will say, oh, my God, it's so profound. And I think it's an age issue. And I don't want to spend all the time on Jordan, but you and I are Xers. Yeah. And kind of the last of the generations who were allowed to play outside without our parents being called for, for sure. having the police called. We, we were free range kids. So Stranger Things looked like my childhood, riding bikes in the neighborhood. I grew up in Tucson. I was out with rattlesnakes. I could yeah. have been bit. There's yeah. coyotes, you know, but right after that, they weren't allowed to get out. And I, I think that that's, that's caused a lot of the, yeah, he has a huge following amongst young kids. Yeah. But to switch back to it, um, that actually is a perfect lead into your current project with Larry Winget. Yeah. You know, I, I did not know Larry. I knew of Larry and I guess I knew him, but I'd never met him before. Um, we talked on the phone a couple of times. Um, I was disinvited from speaking to the university of Oregon once in a very strange, bizarre, politically correct thing. If you want me to tell you the story, I'll tell you, it's just, you want to know, you want to know the craziness going on on college campuses. Ask me to tell you how I got disinvited and, and the, the rationale for disinviting me. It was absolutely shocking. So I talked 
talked to him on the phone once. And then uh, when I moved down here to to Arizona, I lived four miles north of him. And I just said, hey, I moved down here. Let's get together. We got together. And literally the first time we ever got together, we started talking about men and masculinity. And uh, he said, let's write a book together. I said, let's do a podcast. And, and the podcast was born first and the book's coming out next month. So <laughs> the real man's handbook. Um, 12 commitments real men make. So, um, but yeah, just trying to help people understand and navigate masculinity. Well, very cool. So, okay. You got to tell me how you got kicked So I get a call from a young kid who's part of a fraternity and they're doing a fund. They, they wanted to do a fundraiser for the American Diabetes Association. That was their charity of choice for their fraternity at the University of Oregon, which has one of the largest budgets in America, uh, you know, $50 million or something, student government budget. So he says, can you, you know, can we bring you in? And, you know, what do you normally charge? I said, well, I normally charge $20,000. Oh, well, okay. Well, I don't know about that. I said, well, I'll tell you what, you're doing it for charity. Pay me five, go to a local hotel, ask him to throw me up for a night overnight and, and uh, donate it to you guys. And we'll put on, you know, we'll put on a thing and, and you can sell tickets and all the money can go to, you know, all the money can go to um, uh, your charity, American Diabetes Association which plays into the whole concept cool. here. So um, he was going to go to the student body and get $5,000. So he goes in there and he says, hey, you know, I want this thing. And and uh, they said, okay, does anybody have anything to say? And these people stand up and say, we absolutely are diametrically opposed to Chris Widener coming on campus and speaking. Wow. And man, the, and the young kid who wanted me to come in is just shocked. He, his head spins. Okay, why? They said he is an ableist. You know what an ableist is? You, you, you basically you hate disabled people, and and yeah. so he he's like, huh? You know, and the people up front are like, explain yourself. What are you talking about? And I kid you not, they said, well, he tells people that they can do anything they want in life, and some people are handicapped and can't do what they want in life. How dare you? Oh, it gets worse, and he is opposed to blind people. And they said, opposed to blind people, how so? And they said, he tells people that they should have vision for their life and blind people can't have vision. (laughs) These are idiot college students who are going to go out and run our company. I mean, (laughs) so this became a huge deal. The University of Oregon newspaper, the Emerald, I think it's called, ran two articles on it because – so then they said, oh, wow, you're right. He's a horrible human being, this Chris Widener. And so they denied me. The irony was I'm being called a disabledist, people who are disabled or, or handicapped or you know whatever you want to call it. And I was coming to town to raise money for people who have a disease. Right? <laughs> I mean, so anyway, as soon as they bang the gavel and say no money to Chris Widener, the next person that comes up was a uh, a transgender African American guy who they paid eighteen thousand dollars to come in and speak, and they got the money granted to them to have him come in and speak. So this guy calls me up and he says, um, "Hey, you know, you got turned down, but I'm going to appeal it. We have an appeal process. So, but I got to ask you some questions first. He says, "Do you hate <laughs> black people?" I said, well, my son-in-law's black and my grandson and granddaughter are black. And no, I I don't hate black people. (laughs) So he says, okay, um, do you hate gay people? I said, I got tons of gay friends, got no problem. You want to, whatever you want to do sexually is your deal, not mine. I just, I don't need to know anything about it. I don't want to know what the heterosexuals are doing behind closed doors. I don't want to know what the gay people are doing. Do whatever you want to do. So, um, 
the last one question they asked, they said, would you be opposed to having a safe space in the auditorium when you speak? And I said, what is a safe space? Well, it's a curtained off area where people can go if they feel threatened by your speaking. And I said, well, I would think the most logical safe space would be their dorm room. If they don't want to hear it, they don't have to come. <laughs> but yeah, sure. Knock yourself out, throw up a curtain and let them go sit on the other side of the curtain. Although I still think they're going to hear it over the loudspeaker if the only thing separating them is a curtain. So I gave him all the answers. He went back and he offered to have me you know, come and speak again and blah, blah, blah. He gave all the answers. They denied me again. And he came back and he said, Chris, I, I can't keep pushing this. And I said, well, why not? And he said, I, I just can't. And I said, are you being threatened? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm being threatened now. And I started doing research on the University of Oregon. Uh, one of the big, I don't know if it was Vanity Fair or one of the big magazines did an article. They have such a huge budget, $50 million, $40, 50000000 million, that national groups, adult groups get involved and they find students to run for president and vice president. And the two guys running for president one year got into such a thing where they were, they were like trying to get people trapped in sexual situations and undercover videotaping and undercover audio recording. They found out that all these adult groups were involved in funding the race because they want to control that $50 million so they can use it to to enforce their political agenda on the campuses. Truly fascinating. University of Oregon, that, that's the story about how Chris Widener got uh, disinvited from speaking at the University of Oregon. Wow. And I would imagine that something like that happens all across on all the campuses. Um, if you ever want to read an interesting book about how we got to where we are, read Slouching Towards Gomorrah by Robert Bork. Uh, where he talks about how this uh, began in the 1960s with a, a purposeful, designed, implementable plan of the left to overtake college campuses in order to uh, to do this kind of thing. It's it's pretty fascinating. And he famously got borked. He got borked. Do you know why he got borked? It was interesting. Uh, do you know that Bork was the guy who committed the Saturday night massacre for Nixon? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, Nixon. Nixon. Uh, he told his um, he told his uh, attorney general to do it, and the attorney general said, "No, I'm not going to do it." So he fired him. Got the assistant attorney general, deputy attorney general, to do it, and and he wouldn't do it, so he fired him. Next in line was solicitor general. And solicitor general was Robert Bork, and Robert Bork, being a strict constitutionalist, uh, said, "Well, my commander in chief and my my executive officer is telling me to do a job, and so he did it." And um, the, the story is interestingly told in a book called Kennedy versus Nixon, the rivalry that shaped post-war America by Chris Matthews. And uh, I'm not a huge Chris Matthews. The Chris Matthews. Yeah, I'm not a huge Chris Matthews fan, but I've, two of his books are actually really interesting. Uh, one is called uh, Kennedy versus Nixon. And then the other, I think, is called Hardball. And it's it's about uh, politics and, and running. And when I decided to run for the United States Senate in 2010, somebody said, you've got to read that book because it'll tell you everything you need to do and not do. And so I did. It was actually a really good book. Starting with not no, run. Start, no. Starting with uh, one of the, well, one of the lessons was... Um, one of the lessons was uh, shine a light on your problem before the other person does. And, uh, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so what you do is you find your, uh, your, what would you call um, uh, your weakness and you tell it and control the narrative before the other person controls it and tells the narrative. Yeah. It's famous in um, court yeah, cases sure. too, is to, you know, illustrate your own you know weak points and yeah. explain them yeah. beforehand makes perfect yeah. sense 
So what do we have coming up for you, Chris? Uh, well, we've got the book, Real Man's Handbook, coming out. Uh, Larry and I do. We've got a conference coming up October 27th. I don't know when this is going to air, but October 27th here in Scottsdale, Arizona, the Real Man Conference. Great speakers. Uh, we've got uh, Dr. Robert Schuler joining Larry and I. Um, uh, former pastor of the Crystal Cathedral. We have Andre Wadsworth, who was the third pick in the uh, National Football League NFL draft. Um, Todd Stottlemyre, who won three World Series as a pitcher in the major leagues. A guy named John Beatty, who's climbed the highest mountain on every continent, is going to do a youth track for uh, junior high and high schoolers. And so doing that. And then I'm also writing my next business book called How to Become a World Class Dealmaker. So, um, Got a lot, got a lot going, and then I'm getting married. I'm getting married next June 18th in Italy. So uh, super excited about that. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Excellent. Now, can everyone find you at chriswidener.com? Yep, chriswidener.com, or you know they can check out realmanpodcast.com, which is Larry and my deal. Realmanpodcast.com. That's where I'm spending the bulk of my time. Probably the most time I'm spending right now is in is in that podcast because Larry and I really believe that this isn't just a business for us. It's a movement. You know, Larry's Larry's at the tail end of his career. He's got all the money he needs. He's made an amazing uh, success story out of his career. You know, he's 65 now and trying to slow down. And, and, um, this is something that he, what a coincidence. Um, somebody at the tail end of their career. Well, that's what Larry always said. Like, uh, like every famous person you ever worked with died. He said, are you trying to tell me something? And, uh, <laughs> and so it's kind of funny, but, uh, no, I, I, um, uh, I, I think this is a work of love for him. It's something really he's passionate about is helping young guys. You know, he's got two sons and he's got, I think, two or three grandsons. And uh, so this is a work of love for him. And, and I've always had a passion for guys to to excel and be their best. And so this is something we both are really doing because we love it. Well, fantastic. And I'll definitely keep listening to it. I encourage everyone else to. And I want to thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 